Powell Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's energy-efficient windows keep the cold outside where it belongs, lowering energy bills. Get 0% interest up to the year 2029 if you book by January 31st. Visit PowellWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Okay, let's see. What has happened since we last spoke? Well, okay, the stock market had a big day on Friday afternoon, and it appears like it's going to have another big day today. That That's good. We have a Speaker of the House of Representatives. It seemed like it took a gazillion ballots, but... Ultimately, Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Now the interesting story is going to be how does he govern the House of Representatives with all the different deals he had to broker and the things he had to agree to in order to, again, get people to vote for him. That's a topic for maybe later on in today or moving forward. Let's see. What else did we talk about? Oh, yeah. There is that little thing that happened in Green Bay last night. The Packers season comes to an end, well, with, with a thud. The Packers, I think, get pretty much outplayed by the Detroit Lions, and with an opportunity to go to the playoffs, they, they fall flat on their faces. Now, you can make a very strong argument that even if they had won, they go to San Francisco, and chances are San Francisco's won like 10 games in a row or something. Chances are they were going to just get drilled in San Francisco. So I guess the question becomes, are, are they better off losing at home or having that extra game? Now, for Packer fans' perspectives, we'd all love to have that extra game, I think. But the, the truth of the matter is this team underperformed. It was a disappointment. There were lots of problems, and, and candidly, most of the games they lost, they deserved to lose. This wasn't a situation where, oh, they got a bad call that cost them this game, or there was a freak play that cost them that game. No, you look at the, the nine games the Packers lost, and almost every single one of them, they, the, the better team won, and that better team in those losses wasn't the Green Bay Packers. Now, there, there's a lot of blame to grow around. You had just really, really stupid plays that were made during the course of yesterday's game and the course of the season, including the linebacker, Quay Walker, who pushes a trainer. I mean, what, what's that all about? And gets penalized and gets thrown out of the game. Just dumb stuff like that. I think Matt LaFleur, um, candidly, he, he learned that it's a lot easier to win 13 games a year when you have lots of talented players and you have a quarterback playing at the MVP level. In a year where you didn't have as much talent and you didn't have a quarterback playing at the MVP level, I, I think you know you got to look at a lot of the stuff that Matt LaFleur did, and I think you can fairly say that he had a pretty poor coaching job. Lots of uh, lots of times I think he got out-coached. You had bad game plans. You had bad game decisions like, okay, are, are you really going to go for it again on fourth and one when you're deep in your own territory? You had lots of poor personnel decisions, a refusal to recognize that, hey, we, we've had Amari Rogers for three years, and he's really not cutting it. Why do we keep putting him out there to fumble? And I, I think an inability to adjust during the course of the year. You've got a defensive coordinator who was really, really struggling, but instead you say, okay, we're not going to see any problems. So all that's a problem. Moving forward, though, 
Uh, the big question becomes, what happens this off season? And I want to discuss with you the same thing that I know people are discussing all across Wisconsin, and that is the future of Aaron Rodgers. Now, here, here's the bottom line, and I've been saying this for a couple years. Athletes typically do not age like fine wine. In other words, they don't get better with age. And as somebody who has followed sports my entire life, one of the things I know is that you can have a player that will perform at a very, very high level, and then they kind of level out, and then there's a drop-off, and oftentimes that drop-off becomes precipitous. How many times have we seen baseball players that at the age of 32 sign some massive contract for eight or ten years and they play well for the first three or four years and then their skills start to deteriorate it happens with everybody i think this is the year that you saw aaron Rodgers come down to earth now aaron Rodgers, i i think you can make an argument this year that he he wasn't a bad quarterback but he certainly wasn't a great quarterback he, he had a very very average season throws that he used to be able to make he, he just could not make Aaron Rodgers I think always had some questionable mechanics he'd throw the ball off his back foot things like that but he had all this great arm strength and this great accuracy and, and he was able to make up for it this year it really didn't seem to me that that was the situation Aaron Rodgers looked very very ordinary and the idea of him throwing you know one of those like uh, lame duck passes down the sideline after another with almost no chance to complete them, it, it got sort of frustrating. My sense is that Aaron Rodgers is not going to get better than he was this year. Now, you might get some more talented players around him, maybe another year of experience, so maybe you can stop the drop-off. But my guess is that Aaron Rodgers' glory days are over. And it's not saying that if you put him with the right team, surrounded by really, really talented players, he might be able to... I don't know, get get that team back to the Super Bowl. But it strikes me that the Packers are more than just a couple players away from getting to the Super Bowl. And I don't see Aaron Rodgers, again, getting better. It's just what happens when, when you get older. And if you say that he was an average quarterback this year, is it more likely that he's going to be an average or a below-average quarterback next year or that he's going to return to MVP greatness at the age of 40? Well, I, I my guess is... It's downhill from here. Now, he's guaranteed about 58 M as in million dollars. I don't care what the speculation is. I will be stunned if Aaron Rodgers, even though he talks about having generational wealth, not needing money, I would be stunned if he walks away from $58 million. So I think it's pretty clear that when the smoke clears, Aaron Rodgers is going to say he wants to come back. So the question becomes, you know, what do the Packers do? Should they be looking to try to trade him? Or does Aaron Rodgers give them the best chance to get to the Super Bowl next year? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. The future of the Packers. This is a big offseason because there's no question. Several of the players, they're not going to bring back. They're not going to bring back Mason Crosby. They're not going to bring back Randall Cobb. I doubt they bring back David Bakhtiari. They're probably not going to bring back Mercedes Lewis. There's going to be a bit of a transition. So what do you do with Aaron Rodgers? And, again, if Aaron Rodgers wants to come back, there's not much the Packers can do, but they can look to trade him what should his future in Green Bay be? 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment. 
My favorite text of the day so far, one of our texts is, hey, Jeff, you're, you're completely wrong about Aaron Rodgers getting older. I think Mallory Edens is guaranteed to keep him young. I don't know, could be or perhaps age him. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. I just, I, I guess, here, here is my position on this as a Packers fan. I think all players reach a point where they start their, their play starts to deteriorate. I mean, I've been a sports fan for all my life, and that's what you see. And sometimes the drop off is precipitous. Sometimes it is gradual. But it seems to me that we're clearly at that point with with Aaron Rodgers. And you know, Matt Lafleur learned that you can make a lot of coaching mistakes and get away with it when you've got an MVP caliber quarterback that's playing. But when the quarterback is playing. As an average quarterback, or maybe not even average, well, then everybody else has to step up, and that just did not happen for the Packers this year. Now, a number of people are saying, Jeff, you're being too harsh on this. Remember, he, he screwed up his thumb, and if it wasn't for the screwed-up thumb, you would have had seen a much different season. And and there's, there is a possibility, I guess. If that's the case, then they should have benched him because he was not helping the team if he couldn't play. But, you know, there was a play in last night's game, in the early on in the game, that to me kind of demonstrated where Rodgers is. It was like third down and three or something on the on the Detroit three-yard line, and they Rodgers fell back to pass, and he had to scramble. And the Aaron Rodgers of three or four years ago, I believe, would have tried to run for that touchdown. There, there was an opening if he would have tried to make a break and go you know, towards the pylon and get into the end zone. There were a couple of Detroit Lions players there. Don't know if he would have made it or not. But instead, Rodgers just throws this pass that the receiver misses, and it ends up you know, the Packers kicking a field goal. To me, that demonstrated one of the real differences that you have between the Aaron Rodgers of the past and the Aaron Rodgers of the present. Now, I guess I just think the way the Packers have to look at this is, you know, what do you do with with Rodgers? Because I assume that, like I say, Rodgers is going to come back. So the question is, does Aaron Rodgers give you the best chance to get back to the Super Bowl, which is the goal? Or do you have to recognize that, okay, maybe maybe it is time to move on from that? And from Rodgers' perspective, I mean, I'm sure he'd love to have another Super Bowl year. Maybe he'd be willing to get traded to a team like San Francisco or something. So the Packers could get some salary cap relief. The Packers could maybe get a couple of players and then again start, if not rebuilding, reloading. Jeff, I agree about Rodgers' recent deterioration. Through most of the season, he didn't place his passes accurately when it mattered most, and sometimes he chose the wrong receiver when another one was more open in a better position to gain yardage. He's an of MVP caliber no more. Jeff, here's my predictions. Rodgers goes to the Raiders and reunites with Devontae Adams. All right, well, I think that's uh, that would be interesting because the Raiders are certainly in need of somebody. Jeff, we all agree he's not going to walk away from $60 million bucks. Um I think one way to get around this is a, Bana, is a, a Bobby Bonilla contract type. Just pay him $60 million over five years or some compensation to get out of this, and let's see the Jordan, Live, Love, Jordan Love era starts. Well, I mean, I, I think you know you trade him, and you get something from him, and you recognize that, okay, you know, maybe – you know, Aaron, we wish you well. 
And if you want one more shot at a Super Bowl a la Tom Brady, we're going to give that to you. We're going to find a team that is one piece, maybe a quarterback who formerly was an MVP but can maybe, you know, rise above like last year. We're going to trade you there. We're going to give you a chance to get back to the Super Bowl, and we're going to start um, rebuilding. Um, 855-616-1620. Um, let's see. Um, Jeff, um, I think like Brett, this will end badly. Well, I hope not. I mean, I hope not. Jeff, I said it last year, trade him. Well, you know, in, in retrospect, in retrospect, the Packers made a mistake. They thought that having, well, they, they thought that having Aaron Rodgers would give them the best chance to get back to the Super Bowl. And that failed in part because in some years, the Packers had surrounded Aaron Rodgers with a lot of mediocre players. Aaron Rodgers was a great enough quarterback that he was able to elevate the people around him. And he, he although, although, they, although they only won that Super Bowl, they were able to like, at least, you know, accomplish lots of stuff. Well, well, this year, it, it just didn't happen. I mean, seriously, can I see a show of hands? Last night, if you were watching the game, when the Packers got the ball and they were trailing 20 to 16 and you needed to drive 85 yards to score the game-winning touchdown, did anybody really think that Aaron Rodgers was going to be able to do that? Now, I, I, um, we had a number of people over last night to kind of watch the, the game, and that was the question I put to our group. All right, the Aaron Rodgers of old, you give him the ball, the, their own, the Packers' 15-yard line, four minutes to go. I'd say it, it's probably 75% chance that he's going to figure out a way to get his team into the end zone. Well, uh, you know, nobody thought that that was going to happen last night, and I think everybody w- was pretty much right about this. Um, Jeff, with the pack parking ways with the other players, Bakhtiari, Crosby, Cobb, and all the other best players, um, I think um, Rodgers... I, I think there's going to be no chance that they're going to, you know, get back to the Super Bowl again. I think there's an element about that. Jeff, I think it's past time to trade him. number of people are saying, Jeff, you got you, you know, understand he was playing with a broken thumb. Well, if you think, I guess, and you make the conclusion that that's all the problem, that if it wasn't that, that injured thumb, Aaron Rodgers would be the Aaron Rodgers of old. Okay, well, then maybe you say, okay, we pay $58 million and we bring this back. I guess I believe that the problems, it was more than just the the broken thumb. It was decision-making. It was holding on to the ball way too long. It was missing open receivers. It was, if, if, if you can't make certain throws, then you just have to adapt, and he just kept trying this. Jeff, I think trade him. We need to start from scratch. His age is showing he's just not quick in the pocket. Um, well, that's it. Jeff, for the first time since the pre-Farb days, I'm apathetic to Rodgers coming back. I'm 50% let the former MP, MVP give it another shot and 50% goodbye. It'll be 13 years since the Super Bowl. It will be 13 years since the Super Bowl. Wow. He's 39. He tried his best. Maybe it's time to... Um, Maybe it's time to go another route. Here's one of our texters that says, Jeff, um, if Aaron Rodgers should come back next year, I believe the Green Bay Packers should require him to train in mini camps and all the other camps that they have so he can get on the same page with wide receivers. Beyond that, the Green Bay Packers need to look at more getting the ball in the middle of the field, etc. 
unfortunately, they, they can't force him to come to these like voluntary mini camps and things like that. I do think the texture makes an interesting point. If knowing that you're going to have different receivers, it was, I think, disappointing that Rodgers made the decision that he was going to travel the world instead of being at some of these voluntary mini camps working with these new receivers. Because maybe if he did that, maybe they couldn't force him to do it and they won't be able to force him to do it moving forward. But maybe, just maybe, there would have been more opportunity for continuity. So I, I don't know where this all goes. It's a very, very disappointing season on a lot of different levels. My guess is the Green Bay Packers look materially different next year whether rogers is there or whether he isn't so very glad to have you with us um one of the other things that happened over the weekend is cnh industrial which is a a large company um they have they have plants all over the country but they have um a, a facility hundreds of workers about i think 500 or so um, that are in Mount Pleasant. They have been on strike since May of 2022. The company has hired replacement workers, so they're continuing production. The company made over the weekend that what they said was the, the final offer, that their last best offer that would have increased wages. Well, um, it would have, it would have bumped them 25 to 38 percent over four years. And the, the, it wasn't good enough for the employees. They still had issues. They said, well, our, our health insurance costs are going up. So in any ways, it, it was voted on. Now, a plant in Iowa um, approved it. So the deal was approved in Iowa. Those workers are going back on strike. But the, the folks in Mount Pleasant voted. It was closely but um, they, they voted it down. 55% of the voting members rejected the proposal. 45% voted in favor. So this strike continues, which may be one of the longest labor strikes going on currently right now. So these workers are out. Look, I, I don't take any position one way or the other on whether you know people should have to sign deals or anything like that. But, but here's the reality. These workers have been out on strike well, in, again, since, since May of 2022, you get to a certain point where it becomes almost impossible to make up the ground that you have lost. You know, because even if you get that, okay, we're giving you the 25% increase, you've still lost seven months, eight months. And in this case, unless they revisit this, you're going to, I mean, can you stay on strike for a year? Do you stay on strike for two years? I know they've gotten a lot of support from some of like the national groups. Bernie Sanders has been in Mount Pleasant, you know, encouraging people, you know, fight the evil company. At some point in time, though, like we were saying last week when we were talking about uh, making deals for the Speaker of the House, just like politics is the art of the possible, labor negotiations are the art of the possible as well. And this deal that CNH offered was enough to get people in Iowa to sign. The folks in Mount Pleasant, it's still not enough. But the problem is how much bleeding are they willing to go through and how much more do they think they can realistically get out of the company? Just asking. Well, there is a sameness to a lot of the stories that come out when you sit on a Monday morning and, and you look at, at the crime reports. Like, for example, today's TMJ4. Here's the headline. Two teens arrested following police pursuit crash in West Dallas. Um, two teens have been arrested after a police pursuit led to a crash in West Dallas early Saturday morning. The, the incident began near 70th and Rogers 
when West Dallas police saw an Acura driving at a high rate of speed. Police attempted to stop the vehicle, but the driver, wait for it, fled and sped through a stop sign. The West Dallas police officer continued to pursue the vehicle. Stop sticks were deployed. The driver lost control of the vehicle, crashed into a light pole. And then, of course, we know what happens. They get out. They try to run. Um, police said two people in the vehicle were caught, arrested, taken to the hospital. Both are 17-year-old boys from Milwaukee. All right. So then, let's see. Um, also Friday night, according to MPD, the first pursuit began around 8.30 Friday night. Stolen vehicle was seen driving recklessly near Sherman and Locust. Pursuit ended near Fond du Lac and Locust and was followed by a chase on foot. Eventually, a 19-year-old man was taken into custody. Two firearms were recovered. So reckless driving, guy with a bunch of guns, tries to lead to the police on a chase. He gets caught. All right, a few hours after this, around 1 a.m., officers chased a vehicle that was involved in an armed robbery. The pursuit began near 27th and Lisbon and ended near 37th, uh, Milwaukee police said. 41-year-old man was arrested following a brief chase on foot. Passenger in the vehicle, 51-year-old man, was taken into custody. Now, what is unusual about that story is, of course, the ages of the people who were running. In this case, it was a 41-year-old guy and a 51-year-old guy. But then the story that, that really, I think, of all these different chases catches my attention. Around 3 a.m., Milwaukee police, and this is Friday night, Saturday morning, around 3 a.m., Milwaukee police were involved in another pursuit. The vehicle they were chasing had been wanted in connection to an armed robbery. All right, so 3 in the morning, the cops are on the lookout for a car that has been involved in an armed robbery. They see the car. They try to um, push, pull it over. The pursuit began near 6th and State Street, so kind of downtown, sort of not that far from the, the downtown police station. 6th and State ended near 27th and Cherry when the suspect vehicle crashed into a traffic pole. Uh, two, two people were arrested in the vehicle. Okay, so this is 3 in the morning, car involved in an armed robbery, cops try to pull it over, they take off, high-speed chase, the chase ends when the car gets driven into a traffic pole. So that's the background, 3 o'clock in the morning. Here's the dazzling detail from this story. A 16-year-old girl was arrested and taken to a local hospital out of precaution. Her passenger... A 15-year-old girl was also arrested and taken to the hospital with minor injuries. You have 3 o'clock in the morning, a 16-year-old girl and a 15-year-old girl driving a car that has been involved in an armed robbery. They take off, they run from the cops, they don't thankfully kill anybody as they're fleeing but ultimately the kid loses control of the car you know smashes into a traffic pole and they arrest a 16 year old and a 15 year old did i mention it occurred at three o'clock in the morning our number is 855-616-1620 that's the old national bank talk and text line if you cannot tell i am incredibly frustrated 
by the number of people who have no regard for law enforcement, who have no regard for anybody else, and who run on a regular basis from the police. These high-speed chases, and this, this is just three or four that happened Friday night into Saturday. We, we could spend an hour on the program pretty much every day detailing the, the various chases. And there's all sorts of things that I think we, we need to start doing, including, as I've said before, you know, toughening the standards for reckless driving, putting not giving people fines for the third or fourth time they're engaged in reckless driving, but rather uh, starting to put them in prison. But what's striking about this story to me is, once again, the age of the people involved and the time of day or night that it occurs. What What is a 16-year-old, what are a 16-year-old and a 15-year-old doing out on the street at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, after after an armed robbery, or at least in a vehicle, I don't know if they were the armed robbers, but they're in a vehicle that is associated with an armed robbery. And I understand things are different than when I grow up. But believe me, I, I know that. But when I was 15 years old, there was no way in God's green earth that I would have been out leading cops on a high-speed chase on a Friday night at 3 o'clock in the morning. It just would not have happened. Your parents wouldn't have let it happen. My parents wouldn't have let it happen. (coughs) This would not have occurred. And yet this is a regular thing. I don't think we're ever going to get a handle on at least some aspect of this reckless driving, juvenile car theft thing and the like until we meaningfully start holding parents accountable. You've got curfews in the city of Milwaukee. Let's hold those. and, And, of course, you know, we, we heard this summer, oh, we're going to start enforcing the curfews. Well, well, that never happened. And I understand that the cops have a lot of stuff to do other than, like, enforcing the curfews and all. But just like I always say, nothing good happens outside a strip club at 3 o'clock in the morning. Nothing good happens to 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds leading police on high-speed chases at 3 in the morning either. And it begs the question of where mom and dad are. And if mom and dad aren't going to do what they're supposed to be doing as parents, isn't it time to start holding them accountable as well with fines and maybe more? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I, I understand it's simplistic to just say, where are the parents? But isn't that a fair question? And isn't it fair to start saying, all right, you, you've got a responsibility. And if your kid is out on the streets Maybe it's your responsibility to call the cops and say, I don't know where my child is. My kid's out on the street at 1 o'clock in the morning. I believe that they are up to no good. And and if you're not going to do that, maybe there should be some accountability to you when your kid leads the cops on a high-speed chase at 3 o'clock in the morning. It was a 15- and a 16-year-old girl, for goodness sakes. Is it fair to ask, where are the parents? And is it fair to ask, why do we not hold the parents accountable? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. All right. One of our texters says, "Well, Jeff, you had both your parents and probably lived a suburban life. Um, yeah, I grew up in Glendale. These kids grow up with no father in the household and live in poverty. And I guess uh, my, my response was, I'm not really trying to be flip. Was your your point?" Uh, you know, okay, so yes, some people have it easier than others. There, there's no question about it. But at the same time, is that is that an excuse? 
Um, the, the idea that, okay, well, there, there's no there's no father figure around there, so you let the kids run the streets at 3 o'clock in the morning? I, I think not. One of our other texters says, well, you know, how many curfew, remind me again how many curfew violation tickets have been issued. And I, I remember we, we did this a couple months ago, and it was like a dozen. Remember that those big press conferences after you had the shooting in the Water Street area? Well, we're going to start ticketing everybody, you know, who's out after curfew. And, and it was like less than, than a dozen. It's just it's just lip service for this stuff. And I guess I'm just I'm frustrated about this because every time you have one of these 15 or 16 year olds that leads the cops on a high speed chase like this, the chances are it's going to end poorly. A lot of times what happens is the 16-year-old runs through the red light and hits and kills the, I don't know, the, the 24-year-old man who happens to be just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or they smash into a pole and they kill themselves. I, it's just nothing good happens from this. And you got we've got to stop it. And what we're doing now doesn't do that. And I guess that's that's the frustration that, that I have. Let's talk to Betsy in Pewaukee. Betsy, you're on WTMJ. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. Hi, Betsy. Well, all I know is when I was growing up, when I was out, whether it was a weekday or a weekend night, my dad would be sitting in his chair in the living room by the front door until I got home. And when I was late, well, then maybe I didn't get the car the next time or the next weekend. But these parents have to be held responsible. I mean, you're you're responsible for your pets. If your dog bites somebody, you know, you're being held responsible. And these are children. I mean, there's just, they have to, uh, somebody has to do something. Obviously, the parents aren't, so it may have to hold, you know, be held by the authorities. Yeah, Betsy, thanks for the call. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, that raises, that raises this issue. I mean, is this, do, do you need child protective services to be more involved in a situation like this? And, and I, I don't know because these are juveniles and they're not releasing names at this point in time or anything. But you, I think it's a fair question to say, was this their first time at the rodeo? My guess is you just don't end up at the at 15 years old at 3 o'clock in the morning um, fleeing from the cops in a car that's been used in an armed robbery, and that that's your, your first, again, your first time at the rodeo. So my guess is you're looking at a lot of this, what I will describe as habitual criminality. And yet you have the system that just takes the kids and puts them back again over and over and over again into what I will presume will be a dysfunctional situation. A couple people are texting. I understand that maybe this is the unicorn. Maybe this particular case is the case where you have two kids that are honor students who just decided to I don't know, go out and rob something and go out on a lark. Okay, maybe maybe this is that unicorn, it's the first time. But let's let's face it, we all live in the real world around here, and the real world says that this is a recurring thing, and chances are these kids have been in trouble before, and chances are most of the other kids who do this as well. Jeff, I was a single mom, and just remember, discipline is free. It has nothing to do with poverty. I, and I'm, I'm glad she texted in like, like that. I have a had a very dear friend. He passed away a couple years ago. Um, uh, wonderful man. He was a person of color. Um, he grew up, again, single, single parent household. And, you know, he would tell me stories and it, and it wasn't, wasn't easy. And he would tell me stories about how his mother was actively involved. The dad wasn't in the picture, but, but he didn't get a chance to run the streets. The mom was actively involved. And yes, she worked two jobs to help support my friend. But 
um, and he always just remembered that as, as he you know went up and he was an attorney. He ended up being an attorney, very successful attorney. Passed away, like I say, a few years ago. But you know, he always talked about his mother who was actively involved. So it wasn't just a question of oh, there's only a one parent household. Does that make it a little more difficult? Sure. It wasn't just a question of oh, okay, you, you don't have a lot of money because a lack of money doesn't equate to allowing children to run the the streets. Um, Jeff, maybe the parents work nights. If it were my kid, I'd want them to get a ticket to help teach them. Well, I, again, may, maybe the parents work nights, but, I mean, seriously, you know, a 15-year-old kid, you know, that's out at 3 o'clock in the morning, my guess is it's more likely that the parents just didn't give a rat's rump about where the child was. I mean, no question about it. Jeff, I'm the parent of a 25-year-old who is currently in prison for years. He was out of control because of an addiction um, his father and I are intact, and the court, we went and helped, begged for help, but unfortunately, unless you are independently wealthy, there's no help for addicts, and the court doesn't care until the child does so many egregious deeds and ends up in prison. That's how it ends up. I understand that there are some parents who are out there and are very, very aggressive about this, and that, that you know you can have the best parents in the world, and you can't necessarily stop a kid from making bad choices and falling in with the wrong crowd or whatever cliche you want to use and and committing crimes. But I'm saying that the parents, I think, need to have some sort of responsibility. And if your kid is out of control, well, okay, maybe what you end up having to do is, again, have some accountability and say to the cops, my kid is, is out of control. Jeff, what's the end game if we start holding parents accountable? Um, I think it's a stretch to hold parents accountable. Well, by not holding parents accountable or getting them involved, all you do is you guarantee that these young criminals are going to become older career criminals. If you just turn them loose over and over and over again to continue to commit crimes. Jeff, law enforcement is useless if not followed up with some type of sentencing, minor or adult. Well, I... I completely agree with that, and you're preaching to the choir when it comes to that with me. What you need to do is you need to, um, again, have a situation where you're in a position where what we're saying is, hey, look, we're going to hold you accountable, and we're not going to just simply allow you to allow your kids to run the street and not be held accountable in any sort of meaningful fashion. One of our texters says, Jeff, this has become a culture of criminal activity. Reckless driving, car theft, disregard for social for proper social conduct. It is a culture. You know, I think there is an element of that. But what we always say, it's the cliche. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and being surprised that the results aren't different. For the last 10 years, my guess is I could do a story like this three or four times a week. And people would say, well, you can't hold the parents accountable. How much more of this stuff are we going to tolerate before we say, look, we've got to just completely take another look at the system? And, yep, parents, you should know where your 15-year-old is. And if you don't know where your 15-year-old is at 3 o'clock in the morning, maybe it's time for the system to come in and start to require you to at least provide some basic functions of what you're supposed to do when you're raising children. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Welcome back. So very glad to have you with us. A lot of stuff coming up in the 1 o'clock hour of the program. The trial of last century. 
in Wisconsin is on tap to restart. It may be the trial of this century. I'll walk you through what's happening this week in a Kenosha court. Later on, we're going to talk about a woman who teaches a global art history class. At least she used to teach one until she showed the students a very, very famous piece of global art history. It's an interesting story. Joe Biden looks like he's in for another run. We'll talk about that. And this story out of Virginia involving the six-year-old who brings a loaded gun to school and shoots his teacher in the abdomen. What do we do with them? And as long as we're talking about parents, is it fair to hold the parents responsible in that case? All that and a lot more is coming up in the 1 o'clock hour of the Wagner Show. Don't go anywhere. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right, you may remember about seven years or so ago in, in Paris, there was an attack on, on the offices of, of Charlie Hebdo. That's a, a French satirical magazine. And if you will recall, what had happened is the, the magazine had been reprinting mocking cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. Now, an, in, in Islam, there are at least a number of people who believe that it is a violation of deeply held religious beliefs to show depictions of the Prophet Muhammad. And so the fact that this this magazine had these satirical representations of the Prophet Muhammad, it, it was seen as the reason why you, you had this, this attack. So re- remember that. Well, here's a, an interesting story, and it comes from Hamlin College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hamlin College is a small, very expensive private university with about 1,800 undergraduates. There is a woman, her name is Erica Lopez Prater. She's an adjunct professor at Hamlin University, and she teaches a global art history class. So this is at the college level, and it's global art history. So in teaching global art history, one of the paintings that she decides that she is going to show and talk about to her class is a painting that goes back to, well, the the 14th century. And it's one of the earliest Islamic illustrated histories of the world. This painting is shown regularly in art history classes. And it shows a winged and crowned angel Gabriel pointing at the prophet Muhammad and delivering to him the first revelation of the Quran. Muslims believe that the Quran comprises the words of Allah dictated to the prophet Muhammad through the angel Gabriel. Okay, so you, you get you get the idea. This is a very, very famous 14th century painting. The image is described by Islamic art scholars as a masterpiece of Persian manuscript painting. The original is housed at the University of Edinburgh, but similar paintings have been on display in places like the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, a sculpture of the Prophet Muhammad is at the Supreme Court. All right, so that's that's the background of this. 
Um, now, most Muslims believe that visual representa- representations of Muhammad should not be viewed. But that's the background on this. This is a famous piece of art. This isn't a caricature that's mocking, that's a, that appears in a French satirical magazine. This is a famous piece of art. It is a global, did I mention it's a global art history class at the college level. Okay, so what in the syllabus, you know, when, before you take the class, in the syllabus, the professor says, look, the images of holy figures, including the Prophet Muhammad and Buddha, would be shown in the course. So she's saying, we're, we're, this is it's a global art history class, and we are going to show some of these in, images. In the syllabus, this is before people take the class, she asks students to contact her with any concerns, and, and no one did. All right, so what happens is she's teaching the class. You come to the segment where, again, she's going to teach this, and she says, okay, we're going to be talking about this famous painting, Nobody complains about it at all. She shows the image. Okay, fine. After she shows the image, a senior in the class goes and complains to the administration. Other Muslim students not in the class support the student, saying the class was an attack on their religion. They demanded that officials take action, and officials did take action. They went to the adjunct professor and they told her that her services were no longer needed. They said in emails to the students that the incident was clearly Islamophobic. Islamophobic. And um, they say that respect for the Muslim students should have superseded academic freedom in this particular case. Um, The student who complained said, well, I, I was just, I was kind of blindsided by this. As a Muslim and a black person, I don't feel like I belong. I don't think I'll ever belong in a community where they don't value me as a member and they don't show the same respect to me that I show to them. Now, from the perspective of the, the teacher and another a number of other scholars, they say, well, well wait a second. I mean, this is, this is history. You had the warning. People were told that this was going to happen. Nobody complained. And it's only after that this is shown that there is a complaint. The student who complained uh, has never explained why she didn't raise concerns before the image was shown, but argues that images of the Prophet Muhammad should never be displayed, period. All right, our number. 855-616-1620. That is the Old National Bank talk and text line. Now, I think, for example, uh, a professor standing up at a class and saying, right, we're going to have a conversation about, I I don't know, something offensive, and I'm giving you a warning, and then going ahead and having the offensive conversation, it, it, it may or may not be appropriate. In this particular case, though, it is a global art history class. She is displaying a piece, again, a universally recognized piece of global art. It fits in perfectly with what the syllabus of of this class is. Should she be fired for showing this picture because 
one or a handful of students, despite giving warnings, despite giving the option to opt out of the class, despite being the, given the option to not show up on that particular day without any penalty, should the professor be fired because she wanted to teach in a global art history class a piece of generally recognized global art that is on display in a museum in Edinburgh and has been on display at the National Museum of Art, etc. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. This, this to me, again, is one of these examples where you, you have, it is, the, it is now, it's the war on, on academic freedom. I understand why some people might be offended by this. If you happen to be offended by this, maybe you shouldn't have taken the class, or maybe you should have skipped the class that day. But if we now reached a point where somebody somewhere might be offended, in this case by a, a painting, a famous painting that depicts an image of the Prophet Muhammad, does that mean that you cannot teach to anybody this, this famous piece of art? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. I'm sorry, but this stuff just makes my head want to explode. Here you have a situation where on a college level, you have an art professor who is teaching um, she is teaching an Islamic art masterpiece in a class on art history, and she's doing it after having given multiple warnings. And somehow this should end up costing her her job because this is inherently Islamophobic. It, it's like they're, they're trying to equate it to, I don't know, somehow vandalizing a mosque or violence against Muslims and, and hate speech. There, there's nothing hate speech at all in connection with this. What you have here is a simple situation of a, a person who is is trying to teach art history. And, I, I mean, I always thought with the whole idea of art was that it was supposed to be provocative. Now, in this particular case, I, I don't know how provocative this really is. This is a 14th century masterpiece. And I guess for everybody who gets worried about this stuff nowadays and all the cultural warriors who are out there trying to figure out ways to cancel people and stuff, what 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 do we do? What do you do with this famous piece of, of, of artwork that, that's, that's out there? Do we just pretend it doesn't exist? Do we take it off to the wall of the museum in Edinburgh? Do we burn it? Do we um, graduate a, a generation of art uh, students who have no knowledge of certain things? Well, you know, there were these very, very famous paintings that were done by 14th century, you know, masters, but we can't show them to you because somebody somewhere might end up being upset uh, about that. And then the question becomes, you know, where where does it end? You know, what what can you do? Can you not? I don't know. One of our texters disagrees with me, but it's making the point. All right. Can, can we not teach different theories as to what the start of the Civil War was, was all about? Now, I think there's some theories that have much more validity than others in connection with that. But can we not discuss that? Is this the, the point we're at? Does everything have to be revisionist history because somebody somewhere is offended? I think what this teacher did was absolutely the perfect thing. I'm teaching art history. 
there might be, by the way, if you're going to take this, just a class, understand there might be some controversial stuff that's here. Um, I understand that some Muslims feel this way about depictions of the Prophet Muhammad. Well, there's a very, very famous painting that depicts this, and we're going to be discussing it in class. If you don't feel comfortable with that, well, you, you might want to talk to me, or you might want to not take the class, or you might want to be gone that particular day. But this idea is, all right, but we can't tell anybody about it because somebody somewhere might um, be offended. Jeff, I guess next time her replacement professor will know to avoid any mention of Muslim art at all. Well, I guess I guess that's what the lesson is. Here, we're not going to teach anything because we're afraid that somebody somewhere might be offended by something, and then I'm going to end up, you know, losing my job. Marnie in Milwaukee. Marnie, you're on WTMJ. Hello? Hi, Marnie. Hi, Marnie. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. You know, my biggest concern with this is it seems to be counter to the last big movement, which was inclusivity and making sure that you have multicultures represented in the art world and the history world and making sure to include all those. If by including a Muslim image, you now are Islamophobic, then if we go back to not including them, then wouldn't that be... Wouldn't that go against I, inclusivity? I, you, you would think, Marnie. Thanks a lot for the call. You, you would, you would think. Now, look, I, I understand. Okay, the, the the reason you had the attack in 2015 at the satirical magazine in, in Paris, Charlie Hebdo, was it, it was it, it was it was different because you know they were publishing satirical cartoons of the the Prophet Muhammad. This this isn't that. So you can maybe say. Okay, you understand why people were offended because this, it was their intent, um, it was their intent to push the envelope and be offensive. This isn't a matter of that type of intent. This was, hey, this is a famous piece of, of art. We're talking about global art, and, and this is important to understand, just like we're probably going to be showing pictures of, I, I, I don't know, you know, some of the pictures of, we've got some with Adam and Eve, we've got all these other pictures, because when we're looking at global art history, a lot of it centers around religion, so we're going to be discussing that in this context. If it's done in a respectful way, how, how can you ignore it? And again, as long as you give that trigger warning, as long as you tell somebody, hey, you might be offended by this and I'm willing to work with you, I don't think you should lose your job. But of course, you know, that's, that's it. And one of our texters correctly notes, doesn't this all fall into the same thing as these people who are trying to remove all the historic statues? Um, yeah. Right. Now, this is a little bit different, of course, than the, you know, the, should you have a, uh, statue of Stonewall Jackson, you know, the Confederate general standing up in a, in the, in a town. That this is a different story than that, and maybe there's different arguments you can make. But yeah, we've got people that are trying to censor history. Oh, we can't have that statue of Christopher Columbus. We can't recognize Columbus Day anymore because don't you know that Columbus was there trying to eliminate all the indigenous people? It's just it's a very very slippery slope, and I wonder where we're going because in the past we always sided with academic freedom, especially if it was done with good intent. Now. I don't know. Now you do this and you put your job at risk. There is a very, very interesting court case that is starting or restarting today in Kenosha. And it's one of the most prominent Wisconsin trials of the last 20 or 30 years. 
you may remember a guy named Mark Jensen in like 2003, 2004, 2005. Mark Jensen was convicted of murdering his wife, Julie. Julie was found dead in her bed in December of 1998. The prosecution's theory was that Jensen um, was seeking a, a divorce from her and uh, that he was cheating on her and she was cheating on him. And the theory was that he poisoned her so he could be free of her by, by giving her antifreeze and then ultimately suffocating her with a pillow. You might remember this story. Uh, the defense said, no, I mean, she was despondent because she, he was cheating on her. She, her. The defense theory was she killed herself and then tried to frame her husband. Now, this case got a lot of attention because the biggest piece of evidence against Mark Jensen, and there's there's all sorts of stuff, like he's on the Internet searching for, like, poisons and things like that, and he allegedly made statements to other people implicating himself in in the murders. Um, But the, the biggest pieces of evidence against him that were introduced at the trial were notes that she left. She apparently left a note and made a couple phone calls to people saying, if anything happens to me, Mark is the one who did it. And she did that in a couple different contexts. At the trial, they admitted these evidence. They, they admitted into evidence the, the notes that she had left while she was living, but she was they admitted them. And what happened is this was a big factor in the jury convicting him because, you know, you had her notes. On appeal, his lawyers argued it wasn't fair to do this because he had a right to con- he had a right to confront witnesses against him, and and she was dead. And these very very powerful notes, he didn't have a chance to he didn't have the opportunity to go cross examine her or anything like that. So ultimately, after lots of legal wrangling, the courts reversed the conviction and said, yeah, he was denied the right to a fair trial. So this case has been kicking around. The murder was in 1998, or the death was in 1998. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Subsequently, he was convicted, I think it was like 2006 or 2007. He's been in prison since then, but the case has been reversed, and now it is going to trial. I've always said it is very, very difficult to retry a case after 20 years. Don't know how much, you know, how, what what are the witnesses are left. Don't know how this is going to play out. But this is a very, very dramatic case. He's been in prison, like I say, for the better part of like 15, 16, 17 years now. The prosecution maintains that he did murder his wife, but now they're going to have to prove it without her statements from beyond the grave. Don't know if they're going to do it or not, but this is a major story, and the case starts today in Kenosha. I am so very pleased to have you spending your Monday afternoon with me. Here is the story as it appears in part on The Hill, the publication. The headline says, Biden readies 24 campaign launch. President Biden's re-election campaign is preparing to launch. After months of will he or won't he, Biden and his senior aides are readying the details around his 2024 campaign. Multiple sources tell The Hill the president is planning to make his intentions to run for a second White House term public in the coming weeks, likely in February around the State of the Union. One source close to Biden's 2020 campaign with knowledge of the president's plan said a more formal announcement is expected to come in April. Behind the scenes, his advisors are meeting with key allies and putting together an expense 
expansive, expansive and revamped digital presence. The story continues. The intention is to mount another presidential campaign uh, began to crystallize, even as some Democrats continue to question whether Biden will run again, mainly because of his advanced age. He turned 80 in November. I think it's all about timing at this point, said one Biden ally. It seems like he's all in. It's not really if he runs anymore. Um, it goes on to say that you know Biden's mold his next steps. Last month, a group of Biden's key advisors met with key allies and constituency groups to talk about the president's agenda. Um, one attendee told NBC News it had the feel of a strategy session ahead of a campaign loss, a uh, campaign launch. And it goes on to say, okay, here's the deal. They're um, they're ready, and they say that Biden is getting into. The race. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Here is my question. Run, Joe, run. Do you want to see Joe Biden run again? And I think there's so many different ways that you can look at this story. If you're a Democrat and you like some of the stuff that he's done, you say, okay, well, maybe I'd like to have him run again. But as the story noted, he's 80 now. He will be 82 if he is reelected. If he would serve the full next term, he would be 86 years old. Even if you like the stuff that Biden's done, is the age factor a detriment? Couldn't we find some, as I always joke, some young whippersnapper, somebody who's 70 or, or something to run? So you've got that. Uh, the Biden administration, I mean, he's still he's been pretty much underwater with approval ratings his entire term. Now, he's up a little bit from like 38, 39 percent approval, but still his approval rating in most polls is 43, 44 percent. He beats Donald Trump, but I'm not sure he beats pretty much anybody else that, that's out there. So it's not like he's this incredibly popular president that, you know, there's going to be, oh, here, we, we've got to have Joe run again. Could the Democrats find somebody who would be a better, younger candidate? Is he the one that's most likely to be reelected? Is, 80, is 82 just too old to be the president of the United States? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old uh, National Bank talk and text line. Let's tee this up. Apparently, Biden is a go. And if he is a go... My guess is nobody will challenge him from inside the Democratic Party. This isn't like um, in 1980 when Jimmy Carter, who had kind of a failed presidency, Jimmy Carter got a challenge from Ted Kennedy, ultimately proved to be unsuccessful. So my guess is if Biden says he's in, people will fall in lockstep and he will be the nominee. Do you want to see him run again? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Okay, so the report today in The Hill says Joe Biden has decided, all but decided, he's running for re-election. And they anticipate kind of a soft launch in February and then the full campaign launch in, in April. Joe Biden is now 80. He would, if re-elected two years from now, be 82 years old, which would mean if he served his full term, he would be 86. Um, I just, I hadn't looked at these for a while. Just, I, I just pulled up. Real Clear Politics, and, and they've got a summary of the latest polls. And you can take polls for a grain of salt or whatever. But these are the late. Just give you an idea of the latest job approval polls. Um, uh, let's see. IBD, TIPP, 44% approval, 56, 46% disapproval. 
Uh, CBS News, their poll from yesterday, Biden has a 44% approval rating, a 56% disapproval rating, so he's underwater. Uh, Politico, their poll has a 43% approval, 55% disapproval. Uh, The Economist, approval, 47%, disapproval, 49%. Uh, Reuters, approved 39, disapproved 55. You, you, you get the idea. Some polls have it closer, but, but he's underwater in all these. And this is pretty much the, I mean, this is pretty much the, 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 the way that this, this has gone, um, with him underwater in a lot of different respects. Okay. So my question is, you know, should Joe Biden run again? Do you want to see him run again? Let's start with Tom in Milwaukee. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Tom. I don't think he should run, and I'm a Democrat, and I just don't think he should run. He's too old. So it's it's not necessarily the age, it's the issues, but it's just it's just the age. At, at 82, time to go concentrate on whatever you're going to do with the rest of your life, not be the leader of the free world. Right, and like you said, by the time he, if he figures it out, if he wins, which I don't know if he would win, He's going to be 86. It, it's just too old. It, there has to be an age limit to to run the country. I think it it, it 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 should be an age limit to be in Congress and to be in Senate. It's it's just there. It's not a it's not a career. And and I know he's been around for a long time. I am a Democrat. I like some of the stuff he does did. I like some of the stuff he doesn't do. But he's just yeah. too old. Yeah, thank you. Need Tom, to move thanks, on. Thanks for- yeah, th- thanks for the call. Yeah, no, no, no I don't, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Thanks for the call. Well, I, and, and by the way, before somebody texts, yes, I know Donald Trump is 76. He would be 78. I think that is too old. And, and I've been making this argument for a while. I mean, isn't I, th- this idea that we, we're, that we can only find people, I mean, is there not, is, isn't there another Democrat out there? Just from, from so many different perspectives. Look, it's not my side of the aisle, and, and this isn't personal with Joe Biden, although you're looking at his his numbers are underwater. His numbers have been underwater. So it's not like this is this incredibly popular president that, that's out there. It's not like this is, you know, FDR running for his second term. You've got a guy who has, has bad poll numbers, has had consistently bad poll numbers, and he's saying, okay, well, I, I want to hang around for another four years at some point in time don't you have to make way even if somebody is has policies that you agree with shouldn't you try to find somebody who has i don't know similar sort of policies but maybe is 20 or 30 years younger 855-616-1620 let's talk to chris in cedarburg chris you're on wtmj hi good afternoon how are you hi chris i'm well thank you um, you know, I just feel that sometimes you got to know when to hang it up. It's like a horse or a dog. You know, <laughs> you got to learn to just let it go. And um, you, plus, you have to question his health, his yeah. brain skills, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. You know, my parents, I got one parent uh, in a nursing home and, you know, younger than him. And I, I just think it's... Um, it's not squared away, and you don't want to have people lose money or him make wrong choices or incorrect mm-hmm. choices. Um, and it, it just it, it it worries me just because his ego or he thinks he can do it. Well, you know what, dude? Maybe you can't. 
<laughs> Thanks for the call, Chris. I appreciate. Well, that's you know, it 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 is there is a certain degree of of ego that goes into the fact that says that you know, if you're 80 years old, that that you you are the one person you that you cannot give it up because I mean, look, the, the truth is, I'm nowhere near 80 years old, but but I understand there's more aches and pains. You know, let me let me let me see a show of hands out there. You know, everybody who. I don't know. Maybe at fifty, you know, it, you're, you're not. Your reflexes aren't quite as good as you were when you were thirty. We were talking about this first segment of the program with, you know, Aaron Rodgers, it, it, and at the age of, you know, pushing forty, Aaron Rodgers, he does not have, in my opinion, the physical skills that he had when he was twenty-five. And, and that, that's not to say that he's not a good quarterback and he can't play quarterback on a professional level. But, but the skills are atrophying, and at some point in time, you, you've got to know when to leave the stage. Now. From my perspective, I, I look at, at Biden and I see the, I, you, if, if I were advising him, the first question would be, why do you want to keep doing this? Other than the fact that it's really cool to be president of the United States and you get to fly around on Air Force One and things like that. But at some point in time, don't you have to pass the baton? And, and here is the reality to all my friends on the other side of the aisle. Age is going to be an, an issue. I don't believe Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. I don't think he's even going to make it to the primary elections. So Joe Biden, at the age of 80, with popularity figures that are underwater, is going to be running. He'll be 82 at the time that he's running. He's going to be running against some Republican who is younger. My guess is the Republican candidate, whether it's DeSantis or Tim Scott or Nikki Haley, it's going to come from a group of people who are decades younger than than Joe Biden. But the idea if Biden runs, I understand he's not going to get a challenge. I mean, the Democrats are, are not going to eat their own in, in that regard. Like I say, Ted Kennedy tried it in 1980 against Jimmy Carter, and, and it didn't go anywhere. But for the good of the country, for the good of the Democratic Party, at some time you'd think that somebody would go and say, Joe, it's time to pass the baton. Scott in Wauwatosa. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, how are you, sir? Good. What do you think? Well, I'm going to spew what everybody else has been talking about. You know, it's his age. Um, you know, I told your uh, uh, screener, I mean, it's like watching Pat Summerall at the end of his career with John Madden. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's like you just wince and like, what are you, what are you talking about? You know, I, I think Joe Biden is a great guy. He's Joe Cool. You know, I love it when Jason Sudeikis plays on my SNL. Um, yeah, he's got that, that eagle thing that makes him want to run again. Um it's just you hate you're almost embarrassed for the person you know um there's got to be some talent out there either party you know i paul Buttigieg, yeah. i take uh barack again or michelle i mean you know there's plenty of plenty of options we just have to get everybody together and you know be on the same page but who knows you know it's gonna be crazy yeah. so Scott, thanks for the call. Well, well as, as long as Biden's in, there's not going to be other Democrats that are in. So one of our Texas said, well, Reagan wasn't really fit to mentally serve his second term. I'm a huge fan of Ronald Reagan. But there is no question, the last two years, and I don't know if it was early Alzheimer's or whatever, but, but Ronald Reagan was going downhill those last two years. And by the way, Reagan was, i, I got to think of the math, Reagan was like six years younger than Biden is, wasn't he? Four years, whatever that was. Reagan was nowhere near, Reagan when Biden took over at 78, Reagan was out of office. I think somebody can fact check me on that. But I, I, I think I think Reagan left office when he was 78. That's my recollection. OK, so Biden and people say, well, well, Reagan was going downhill. Yes. Yes, he was. That is precisely my point. 
um, you know, about this, um, the, the whole idea. Jeff, for the first time ever, I'm discouraged with my future under this president. I don't think he's done anything to help Americans as a whole. I think he's struggling with his, his mental abilities and things like that. Well, because before you even get to the politics of this, do you like Biden's policies or not? And again, if you look at the polls, he, he's big time underwater with regard to that. But OK, th- those change, whatever. But beyond beyond that, you do have th- this age issue that, that's out there about, you know, and how do people feel about it. Jeff, I don't care if Biden runs again, but it scares me that uh, Vice President Harris would take over if he passes. We need somebody else to be the Democrat Democratic nominee. Jeff, if Joe Biden runs again, I think there should be some cognitive test that he has to prove that he's capable of holding the office of the President of the United States. I, age Age is a factor. And again, this comes, I present this from somebody who is, I guess, closer to 80 than I am to to 40 but it, it doesn't make any difference there you just you just realize that there's times it, it's just always amazing to me in many in many avenues of corporate America and big law firms there are mandatory retirement ages we, we say 65 or 68 or in some cases maybe as late as 70 but but there's a reason for that first of all, you know, again, skills start to atrophy. Secondly, you always have that worry about the cognitive decline. And third, you just have to make way on many occasions for the, the quote-unquote younger blood. If Joe Biden runs again, and all indications are that he is, it's to me an example of the ultimate ego and arrogance that I know I know this probably isn't the best, but I just don't want anybody telling me what to do. And me at the age of 82, well, I... I I'm different than everybody else. Um, yeah, so I, I, he's probably going to, you know, go through this. Uh, but even if, you know, if he ran again based on his record and he were 75 and he ran against anybody other than Donald Trump, I think he loses. I think Joe Biden would have probably lost to anybody other than Donald Trump if somebody else had been running, you know, a couple of years ago. So I think in many respects, Biden is a creation of the fact that people were just disgusted. At least many people were disgusted with Donald Trump. It, and, and so but he's not going to have the fortune of running against Trump next time. I can almost guarantee that. And the idea that you're going to run and in this case, perhaps lose and perhaps lose big some point in time. Don't you just want to ride off? You want to don't you just want to ride off in glory? Hey, I'm the guy that saved the world from Donald Trump, putting that in quotation marks. This is what my success is. And and I'm going to be happy. But apparently Biden's ego isn't going to let him do it. Again, the scary news for the Democrats is that I don't think anybody is going to challenge him. You know, maybe Bernie Sanders, who's even older than Joe Biden. You know, maybe Sanders gets in the race. But beyond that, any of the people who've been sitting around, I, I don't see any of them coming out and making a challenge to Joe Biden. So it looks like it's going to be 82-year-old Joe Biden versus somebody else. And like I say, I don't think it's going to be Donald Trump. And inevitably, this conversation will come up and we'll hear, oh, you know, you're being ageist and this is too bad. No. It's just I think most people, and my guess is most people who are in their 80s would tell you that that's too old to be the president of the United States. Take up bridge, 
or something like that with the time that you have left. We've got a lot of really good stuff coming up in the 2 o'clock hour of the program. want to talk about this 6-year-old in Virginia who shot his teacher in the abdomen. Yep, you heard me right. He shot her in the abdomen. We're going to talk about medical marijuana, and we're going to talk about Yellowstone, the TV show, not the park. All that's coming up. Please do not go anywhere. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, very glad to have you with us. Let's get right to this. And there is life after the Green Bay Packers. I mean, brewers, pitchers, and catchers report to spring training you know, sometime in early February. And the Bucks. Got to get it ironed out, but they're still one of the best teams in basketball. So a lot of, lot of good stuff on the sports horizon, and there is always next season. All right. In the first hour of the program, I was telling you the story about the, the latest high-speed police chase, 3 o'clock in the morning, car involved in an armed robbery, takes off from the cops, crashes into a pole, and it turns out it's a driven by a 16-year-old girl. This is 3 o'clock in the morning. 15-year-old girl is the passenger. And we asked the question, Where are the parents? I think it's important to start holding parents responsible for the misconduct of their kids. Some of you think that's a bridge too far. Okay, that's fine. Here's another story, and perhaps you saw this. It comes from Newport News, Virginia, and it it happened last week. You have a a sixth grader who is a first, he's at first, first, I'm sorry, six years old, first grader, at Richneck Elementary in Newport News. So Friday afternoon, what's happening is that the kids in this first grade class are moving from one class, they're, they're taking them to art. At which point in time, the first grader, the first grader, a six-year-old pulls a handgun out of his backpack and points it at the teacher. Um, the, I guess... The boy and the teacher had been involved in an altercation in the classroom but before this ends up happening. But now he's trying, she's trying to get him to art class. He pulls a gun, a handgun, out of his backpack, points it at her, and fires once, shoots the teacher. Now, um, apparently he hit her in the abdomen. The first reports were that this was going to be, you know, potentially fatal. The the good news is she's going to recover. At least that's all the indications. But this six-year-old shoots the teacher with a gun that he had brought to school. Well, all right. Now, the the reality is, you know, we've had the the situation uh, here in Milwaukee where you had the the 10-year-old who was involved in the shooting and is being tried as, as an adult. Well, under the law in in Virginia, at the age of, of six, you, you cannot charge somebody as an adult in criminal court. You just you just can't do that. So that's that's not going to happen. And you know, child protective services are gonna to have to get involved in something like that. You know, that's where you're going to be looking. But but the question becomes, is there still nothing that you can end up doing? Now in Virginia it is a misdemeanor. It's a misdemeanor if um, parents, an adult, um, fails to have a firearm secured and the firearm gets into the hands of, of a student, of, of a child. So we, we don't know how the kid got the gun, but my guess is 
it, I mean, it, it came from home. I mean, my guess is the six-year-old's not out on the street, you know, buying you know, black market guns or anything like that. So my guess is that I feel pretty confident saying that the kid must have taken the gun from home. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, I understand that there's some people who are really squeamish when it comes to holding parents accountable for the misconduct of their children. But let's let's talk about this. If, in fact, the gun came from the parent's household and the six-year-old was able to get it, get it out of the household, and then presumably load it, or maybe it was left loaded, but in any event, it certainly didn't have a trigger locker or anything like that on it, or if it did, the kid was able to, to take the trigger lock off and use it to shoot the teacher. Assuming that gun came from the house, do we hold the parents accountable? Our number, 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line, should the parents be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law? And unfortunately, in Virginia, it is only, to my knowledge, a misdemeanor for, in this case, a minor to get a hold of a gun. I think, if anything, maybe this is something that, regardless of how you feel about the Second Amendment, maybe this is something we could all agree on, is that if you are going to be a firearm owner, you have a responsibility to keep that firearm out of the hands of children. 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. I... If it turns out that gun came from home, I say throw the book at the parents. Any charges you can come up with, bring them. What do you think? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. A number of texters are making reference to the, the, the case that's going on in Michigan where the parents have been charged. Remember, it was the kid, the, the school shooting, the kid brought the gun to school and ended up shooting up the, the school. It's a gun that his parents had purchased for him the couple of days beforehand, and um, there were all these indications that the kid was sort of mentally unstable, and the parents are essentially being charged as accessories. Now, this Virginia case is different because in Virginia, I mean, we're talking about a six-year-old, and, I mean, the only thing that they can probably do under the law is look at the parents and say, Okay, there's there's a misdemeanor statute that says you have to keep guns out of the hands of minor children or children under the age of 14. Um, to me, that that should be much more than a misdemeanor. To me, it's a very, very big deal. And you're talking to somebody who's pro-gun ownership, but there is a responsibility that comes with it. And it is absolutely unthinkable to me that you could have people who would be so irresponsible to a to keep a gun, if this is in fact what happened, we don't know for sure, but I'm assuming it is, that the kid is able to get access to this firearm that's at the house, know how to use it, bring it to school, and then use it to shoot the teacher. Yeah, I say the parents should be held accountable, and I think they should be charged with whatever you could come up with. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Julie in Kenosha. Hi, Julie. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I feel absolutely the parents should be held accountable. Um, and I also agree it should be more than just a misdemeanor. Um, in general, I strongly feel, and I've seen this in my practice, I strongly feel that parents are becoming dissociated from their responsibilities. 
And I feel like if the if the judicial system would actually start holding parents accountable for the crimes that their children commit, you you might hopefully see a swing in that pendulum. Yeah, I, you know, the whole thing, the, Julie, this whole thing is so mind-boggling to me. Again, assuming that the kid got the gun from home, which I think is a, is a fair assumption because it had to come from somewhere, how can— how can you leave guns lying around a house that the six-year-old can, can get in a position to get? And then what type of six-year-old, that's the whole other story, is this type of six-year-old whose response is, I'm upset with the teacher, I'm going to take the gun to school, and I'm going to shoot her. That's, that's, a, that's a whole different thing. That, that's a screwed-up kid, period. Exactly. And I've, I've, I've expressed this to many friends in the past in, in conversations um, I, I'm not necessarily pro-gun, but I, I do believe in the right to bear arms. But when you have children, and you specifically have children that are mentally unstable, you should not have a gun in your home. You yeah, should not. I don't, it, don't we, disagree. We've seen, we've, we've seen the carnage of this. It's, it's. Somebody's yeah. got to put a stop to this, and I, I think holding the parents accountable is a good start. Yeah, no, thanks for calling, Julie. And I, I, I'm with you now. This, like I say, this is different. This is a different sort of charge that you're talking about than they are in the ones in Michigan, where that's more. He, they're actually charged with effectively aiding and abetting in the assault. In this case, I don't think anybody's arguing that the parents knew the six-year-old was going to take the gun, or should have known he was going to take the gun to, to school and, and shoot the teacher. Um, different sort of situation. But I, I do think it is reasonable to say if you're going to be a firearms owner, you have a responsibility to keep firearms out of the hands, in this case, of, of minors. I, I just, and again, I, I don't even, I don't even know where you begin to discuss the conversation of what, what six-year-old brings a gun to school after having had a confrontation with a teacher and, and then shoots them. And, and no, you, you can't, under Virginia law, you, you can't treat the kid as an adult there's no way the kid would be competent at the age of of six but still at the age of six you would think that you would have some some sense of right and wrong to know that you don't take a gun to school and and shoot somebody jesse in west bend you're on wtmj good afternoon yeah 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 three things on this little boy the six-year-old i mean you got if you got the six-year-old and he's caught with a gun nobody got shot Okay, that's one thing. And then the second thing is they elevated the charges. Okay, now he injured somebody. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is now he killed somebody. So there could be three different areas of elevation of charges for this individual. But somebody has to be held accountable. I don't really think the six-year-old, but the parents definitely, because yeah. their little kid could have shot himself at home as far as that's concerned. Yeah, exactly. No, thanks to call or, or shot a sibling or, or whatever. But this doesn't. It doesn't seem to me, and, and thanks a lot for the call, Jesse. This doesn't seem to me. That, you know, a lot of times when when you have these shooting incidents where the guns aren't secured, and that's what makes this so scary and, and so different. Because look, it across this country, unfortunately, several times a week, you can probably find a situation where a couple kids. Um, get access to uh, a firearm that's in the house that's not properly secured. Okay, that that 
that happens too often. And then you have the story like you're talking about where there, there's the shooting. But most of the times in those cases, it's it's accidental. You know, they're, they, they, they're playing with the gun. And, you know, it, it goes off. you got the two eight-year-olds that are playing with the gun, and, and it, they think it's unloaded or whatever, and it goes off, and, and one one of the playmates gets gets hit. But it's it's an accidental shooting brought about by the fact that the parents were irresponsible in, in allowing the kid to get access to it. This This is just, like you were saying, it's a whole nother level of scary because it's not just the six-year-old is able to get the gun, but it's the six-year-old then with the apparent intent to shoot and or kill the teacher, brings the thing to school. I mean, he obviously had to know how to load it or knew that it was loaded. Had to, if there was a trigger lock, had to take off the, off the trigger lock. I mean, I, I, it would be curious, and again, maybe I'm being unfair to the parents. Maybe the story will come out that the kid just found the gun on the street or something, but that, that just doesn't make, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me that that's this. Jeff, charge the parents with reckless use of a firearm for not securing the gun. Ban the parents from having a gun for 10 years. Well, I, you know, something like that. Jeff, I'm so tired of parents who apparently are not the least involved in their children's upbringing. Even if the gun did not come from home, which I seriously doubt, you do need to teach your kids right from wrong. I raised three, and no, it always wasn't always a field of roses, but my kids all knew that shooting another person is not an acceptable form of response, for God's sake. Uh, Jeff, I've texted this before, but yes, absolutely charge the parents. Punishments will not work unless the parents are held accountable. Charge the parents for having a reckless child. Um, this goes for reckless driving stolen cars as well. Well, in this case, it, it's easy because the law requires, if you're going to have firearms around the house, the law requires you to have them properly secured. And that is that is a reasonable law that I think, you know, anybody, anybody should support. If you're going to make that decision to have firearms in the house, especially if there's kids around. But look, I, I am willing to bet that there's many, many people who, even if they don't have kids around the house, they still have their, their guns are locked up They're You know, maybe, you know, if you feel the need to have the firearm in your house for self-defense, maybe it's in a little gun safe that opens with a fingerprint or something, you know, right next to your bed. Maybe it's something like that, or you've got a trigger lock or something like that, because there's always the chance that the grandkids, you know, might come over and play or something like that and find this. So, I mean, I I think most people take these responsibilities and take them seriously. Um, The good news here is it does appear that the teacher is going to survive. The bad news is she was shot by a six-year-old. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. There's a story that broke over the weekend that, again, it's it's one of these that just it it makes me me shake my head. There, um, when people are evicted from homes. The, the Milwaukee in, in Milwaukee County, for example, the, the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department get gets involved, and it's the Sheriff's Department that serves the eviction notice, and in many cases, like the Sheriff's deputies will will be there um, to make sure that the person who's being evicted, you know, leaves the premises and, and things like that. So here's the story: criminal complaint, and Channel 12 had this story first. A former deputy serving an eviction notice. Um, last April, about 40th and, and Burleigh, apparently what the criminal complaint alleges happens is that 
the sheriff's deputy is in the apartment while like the movers are are you know hauling stuff out now again the role of the sheriff's deputies isn't to help move furniture out it's just to make sure everything goes smoothly so you don't have a tenant who's been evicted that attacks the movers or something like that that that's the purpose there so according to the criminal complaint the sheriff's deputy um sees cash in a drawer he grabs the cash 400 bucks gives some of it to one of the movers and puts the rest in his front pocket. All right, so he, he finds some spare cash lying around in this drawer. There's movers on the scene. They apparently watch this, and the guy pockets 400 bucks, shares some of it with the movers. I, th- this is a sheriff's deputy, for goodness sake. According to the report, the, the boyfriend, the tenant's boyfriend, comes back into the house presumably, I think, looking for the, the money and goes up and um, the money's gone. And apparently the guy confronts the sheriff's deputy saying, you know, where's my $400? And at least according to the criminal complaint, the former sheriff's deputy says that he knows he was caught. Um, he told investigators he tried giving the money back, though the other deputy on the scene remembers the tenant again accusing him of still hiding $100 in his pocket, he was fired in August for doing this, and um, now he's he's been um, charged in connection with this. The thing that really strikes me about this conversation is, you have a guy and you know who who's got a career in law enforcement. Okay, this is what he does, and he's he's flushed that all away for four hundred bucks. It's just. It's just like, what What could you possibly be thinking? Now, it raises the question of, was this the first time he did it? Had you done this before and you thought you could get away with it? And those, those are questions we don't know. But I'm thinking you, you've got it. You've got a career. You know, being a Milwaukee County Sheriff's deputy is is not a bad gig. And you've got good benefits and things like that. And you're going to flush it all down the tubes because you see 400 bucks sitting in, in a drawer and you do it. And apparently one of the movers knows that you've done it as well. I just... The recklessness that some people have is just mind-boggling to me. And now the guy's, of course, been fired. He's never going to get a job in law enforcement again because this is going to be on his record. And he might have some other degree of accountability. Now, before people text in, I believe this is incredibly atypical. I, I do, for anybody who thinks, oh, this is what cops do all the time, no, that's not the case. And I guarantee you when police officers hear this story, they cringe because it makes everybody perhaps look bad. But... He flushed it all down the tubes for 400 bucks. So, very glad to have you with us. Over the years, we have discussed the whole issue of, of legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana. And, and we've had many different discussions. And I understand that I am in, in a minority in arguing that, that I believe the legalization of marijuana is not a good thing. And I, we've, we've debated that off and on, but I, I appreciate that more and more people take the attitude of, well, if people want to get high, let them get high. And, and actually, in some states, like in Oregon, now it, it's not just marijuana. Now it's, it, they've, they've pretty much decriminalized possession of anything. If you want to shoot heroin on the street or do methamphetamine, you're, it, it's, 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 Katie, bar the door. Go ahead, and you, you, you can do it, and you're not going to be prosecuted for it. And I think that's just disastrous, and that's what the early results are showing out of Oregon, that you're essentially creating, at least in some of these urban areas, cities that are just populated and plagued by junkies because, you know, the people that are just 
wandering around shooting up heroin. It's it's not like they're being productive citizens. But but I digress, and I'm not suggesting that everybody that smokes marijuana is going to end up you know doing heroin. Although I am willing to bet that most people who end up with cocaine or marijuana or cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine probably started with pot. But that's that's a debate for another day. Within the framework of, of should you have legalized marijuana, there's a, a special category, and that has to do with medical marijuana. And story in the local newspaper the other day that apparently Republican lawmakers in the state Senate are close to supporting the legalization of marijuana in Wisconsin for medical use. Now, a, a number of members of the Republican caucus over the last couple of years have, have opposed medical marijuana. It now appears that that might change. Lots of Democrats, I mean, heck, Democrats pretty much uniformly say, okay, let's, let's legalize pot, period. Forget the medical uses. Let's just legalize pot. The governor has been in favor of that and has been pushing that since he became governor. The Republicans in the legislature aren't anywhere near that, but... When it comes to medical marijuana, apparently there is movement on this. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. I think permission for medical marijuana is long overdue in the state of Wisconsin. Now, I think that there needs to be you know, regulations. You need to have certain controls on this. You need to have it prescribed. But... It's never made any sense to me why we haven't allowed medical marijuana. Now, if you're a longtime listener to this program, you, you, you know my story. My first wife passed away. She was with cancer, had liver cancer, and she was diagnosed, and they said she was going to live a month, and she ended up living, living a year. And, you know, if you've ever gone through something like that, you, you understand, you know, how insidious cancer is. So, you know, and for, for example, for cancer patients, you'll, you'll get these prescriptions for all the, these heavy-duty opioids. I mean, you know, really heavy-duty stuff, and you'll get that prescribed to you. Now, my point was always, well, look, if, if you have some, okay, you, you've got somebody who's a cancer patient. Now, that's an extreme situation, but whatever. But you've got, you know, you've, you've, if marijuana can help ease the nausea. So it makes it easy for people, easier for people to eat. Or if marijuana can kind of help take the edge off of some stuff and you can use it as an alternative to some of these heavy duty opioids, I've always believed what, why not? Now I, I do appreciate that you have to have certain regulations on this to make sure that, you know, that just by calling it medical marijuana isn't just, oh, you know, I, I was out my shoulders a little bit sore, so so here I'm going to go down and I, I'm going to buy this. I mean, so I think there has to be some restrictions, and I'm allow I'm willing to allow smarter people than me to figure out what's appropriate in that regard. But when it comes to using marijuana for truly medicinal purposes, I see no reason why we should not allow that in Wisconsin. And I think we're way overdue in that regard. 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. Medical marijuana in the state of Wisconsin, I think it is definitely an idea whose time has come. What do you think? We discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. There's a story in the local paper about this, and interestingly, 
the, the Wisconsin Medical Society, which is a statewide group that represents doctors, they're, they're opposed to, to medical marijuana. And they say, well, there's a lack of research until um, until science can determine which elements in grown marijuana are potentially therapeutic and which are potentially harmful. Any medical marijuana program is at best a pale imitation of true medical therapies developed through scientific research, which is a, wait, just wait a second. I am again, I'm I'm imagining I'm imagining that cancer patient who is. Um, for uh, whether they're in pain or whether they're having trouble sleeping or whether, you know, they're just extreme nausea or something like that, for which doctors are prescribing heavy-duty opioids. So you're telling me, medical society, you're telling me that you'd rather prescribe heavy-duty opioids for these advanced cancer patients than, than allow them to have some medical marijuana that might ease their nausea. Now, again, I, I appreciate you've got to have standards for this, and you, you don't want this to just be this green light for you know anybody to use an excuse, oh, I kind of strained my neck muscle here, here, give me access to the pot. So you've you got to come up with guidelines. But at the same time, when it comes to medical marijuana, most states... Most states allow it in some form, and if we're going to allow with prescriptions people to have opioids, why in the world wouldn't we allow people to have stuff which is a lot less mind-altering? Let's start with uh, Nick in West Dallas. Nick, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Nick. Um, hi. I suffer from severe bipolar and mood disorders, mm-hmm. and I take, like, the alprazolams and the oprazolines and that's hard because it it takes you down and Mm -hmm. with that it you know but if i just do a little cannabis Mm -hmm. then it's not so bad you know and i've talked to my doctor about it but it's just not legal yet yeah, no, Nick. Thank, thanks for the call. Right, exactly. I mean, that, that's another classic example of this. And I'm, I am not a doctor. I do not play a medical doctor on the radio. I'm not intending that, but I, I do. I have kind of seen firsthand. I mean, I, I know how a number of these legitimate medical diseases are treated, and they're they're treated with some heavy duty sorts of medication. So my my only point is, if you can go with something that is less debilitating, less mind altering arguably a lot less addictive why why wouldn't we do that and i'm getting texts from people and i appreciate this argument saying okay well this this opens the door and then everybody with a hangnail is going to be in getting a prescription for pot i i think you you can regulate that i mean because it's for example you know just like you regulate other sorts of drugs which are distributed whether it's codeine or opioids or whatever um bob in hartford bob you're on wtmj Hey, Jeff, how's it going? Well, thank you, sir. What do you think about all this? Yeah, we need this. You know, I was telling the screener, you know, I hurt my back when I was 18. I'm going to be 60 in two months. I've been taking opiates since I've been 18. I'll be, that's 42 years. Wow. And I've had two major back surgeries when I was 50. I don't, I haven't worked since then. And at this point, I'm looking at some more major surgeries. I can't, I do about 200 opiates a month on top of Adderall, nerve blockers, um, uh, muscle relaxers. I go, I can't do the pain meds anymore. I just can't. I keep telling my wife I can't, you know, and if I didn't Mm -hmm. have grandkids, I'd be moving out of this state. 
but yeah I'm stuck yeah no here. and so but yeah yeah Bob thank, thanks for the call really I appreciate it no and I, I again and these, these are the types of these are the types of stories and it's people who have yeah, look, I, I've been really blessed in my life. I'm, I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm on very, very few medications. I've never, if I've got a prescription for pain pills because I twisted my ankle or screwed up my foot or something, you know, it's been for just a limited period of, of time. So I, I've, I've never had to deal with this situation. But for people who are in chronic pain or for people who have the long-term health issues that we're, we're talking about, you know, just do it. I mean, it's it's just never made any sense to me at all that we would say, no, you you can't. Jeff, I think there's just a bad stigma with marijuana that people need to get over. If it can help you medically, why wouldn't we go that route instead of, like you said, being placed on hardcore medications that ultimately do more harm than good. Jeff, it'll be regulated by doctors writing their prescriptions, and they won't risk their licenses for a hangnail, I I don't think. Well, I, I would certainly hope not. Jeff, medical people do not want homeopathic medicines. It doesn't matter if they work better, but they're tied in with the drug companies, and the drug companies want you to have processed and manufactured solutions. Many homeopathic medicines are far superior to the chemicals prescribed by most doctors. Of course, not in every case. Well, again, I'm not I'm not a doctor. I'm not playing one on on the radio. And I guess I just I try to approach these things from a common sense perspective. And regardless of how you feel about whether or not we should legalize marijuana in general, and I'm not there. And I know, you know, 60 percent, if you look at the polls, 60 percent of Wisconsinites think we should legalize marijuana. I'm not there. But 80 percent of us, and I'm in that 80 percent, think for medicinal purposes that it should, in fact, be allowed. Jeff, Wisconsin is always so late to the party when it comes to what the rest of the country does for change. Jeff, from personal experience, opioids grossly interfere with digestive issues. Well, I mean, that's I mean, that's one of that's one of the the real factors that that's. Out there, Jeff, to me, it's a no-brainer. Marijuana over opioids, come on. Whatever provides comfort over pain and nausea for terminal disease should be allowed. And again, I, I, would, I wouldn't even limit it to terminal disease. That was the example I gave because that, that just kind of hit, hit home. But again, if you've got, I don't know, if you've got a digestive issue or you've got like chronic back pain or, or something like that, and alternative number one is to go ahead and treat it with uh, again, some heavy-duty pain medication, or you know, the alternative treatment would be l- let's let's have some medicinal marijuana that is less addictive and less mind-altering. No-brainer, no no-brainer. So I'm glad I- I'm glad to see that at least there is some movement this year. And like I've always said, I think politics, and we were doing it in a promo. I just heard politics is the art of the possible. I understand and would not be advocating for the full head-on legalization of marijuana. On the other hand, I have no problem at all with saying medicinal marijuana, um, bring it on. All right. I want to get to my stop. I've got a great conversation about the TV show Loans, um, um, the TV show um, Loans, what is it? the uh, Yellowstone. Okay, I was thinking like Lone Star. Yellowstone which has become a huge, not only is the show a hit, but it's got all these spinoffs. We will save that conversation for tomorrow when we talk a little bit about 
Well, one of the big pop culture phenomena. But that's pretty much it for me.